about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Um, Tonight we're reading from Acts chapter 9. I'll be starting at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord... Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Uh, Continuing on from verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. 
He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in fear of the Lord. As Peter travelled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which, when translated, is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please, come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Well, good evening. My name's Roger. I'm one of the ministers here. Great to be with you here this evening. Let me pray as we come to God's word. Father God, we thank you and praise you for the great privilege we have of coming to your word this evening. We ask that you would speak to us, transform us, change us, uh, and transform us into your likeness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight, I hope as you leave, you will be tremendously encouraged and a people of hope. A people of hope because the risen Lord Jesus is in charge. I want you to feel like there's hope because he's in charge of our world. He's in charge of our society. He's in charge of our work. He's in charge of our family. He's in charge of our personal lives. He's in charge of all things and he can turn things around. Believing in the risen Jesus in the book of Acts means living with the possibility and even the likelihood that situations will change and things will turn around. One of the most devastating feelings I think to have is that feeling of despondency, that feeling that things are never going to change, that, well, maybe my relationships won't change, my work won't change, my small group won't change, this society that I'm living in won't change, and it's going to be this way for a very long time, and it might even be getting worse. Well, one of the messages of the book of Acts is that this is not true. Jesus was found dead, but now he's alive. He's not distant. He's not silent. He's not weak. He's not uninterested in this world. And he's not, interested in the prog- he's not uninterested in the progress of his mission or in you. Jesus is interested in you. Jesus is interested in fulfilling his mission on this earth. 
He's alive, and what he began to do in an earthly sense continues now. For us here, for nations, for families, for you. And tonight we'll see that by looking at a particular story, and that story is the story of Saul, who was later named Paul. Saul is converted on a straight street in Damascus. This is the straight street in Damascus. Um, Apparently you can visit there, and it's largely straight these days, although apparently it's changed a little bit. And the account we're coming to this evening is one of three accounts that takes place in the book of Acts. So important is Paul's conversion to what is taking place in the book of Acts and indeed for the whole of Christianity. And so what I'm proposing to do tonight is to spend some time looking at Saul's conversion and then the impact afterwards. So in two spots, his conversion and the impact afterwards. And what I'm proposing to do is just work our way through the text as we think about these things together, remembering that Jesus is in charge and he can turn things around. Well, we begin chapter 9 of Acts, hearing of Saul breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, we know that he is of murderous intent because of what we've already read in Acts. In Acts chapter 7, Saul is present at the stoning of Stephen. He's on the sidelines, and it's not entirely clear how he contributed, but he was certainly there and supportive of what was taking place. By the time we get to chapter 8, what's clear is that he's very involved in persecuting Christians. In chapter 8, verse 3, we read, But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. This was a man with intent to destroy the church and to destroy Christians. He was going from house to house, taking people and putting them in prison. And clearly, his intent led him further than Jerusalem. Notice here, he gets letters from the synagogues so that he can go to the... Sorry, he gets letters in Jerusalem to go to the synagogues in Damascus. Now, Damascus is about 3,000 kilometres drive from Jerusalem. This is a man on a mission. He's going to find every single Christian person he can and drag them back to Jerusalem and put them in jail. But Jesus Christ is in charge and he has other plans in mind. The least obvious person to become a Christian now becomes a Christian. If you can think of all the people in the world who might turn to Christ, Saul was not one of them. He was passionate about destroying the church. While on his way to Damascus, suddenly a light appears. It appears that this happens and people around him don't actually see the same things as him or hear the same things as him. But... This voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, it's interesting to see Saul's response. He recognises something significant is going on here because he says, who are you, Lord? He doesn't say, who are you? He says, who are you, Lord? 
He recognises there is a power at force here and actually a power that is like God. Now, this is the significant moment because what does the voice say? I am Jesus. I am the one who was crucified and is now risen and sitting at the right hand of the Father. I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. What a remarkable turn of events. Here is this man. (laughs) He's out pursuing Christians. He's in charge. He's commanding people. And all of a sudden, he's confronted with the risen Jesus and he's being told what to do. You go into the city and you'll be told what to do. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's in charge. And he's telling him what to do. Now, of course, the picture we see here of persecution is one that continues today. But notice what happens here. Notice that Jesus' response isn't, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting Christians, people who've come to know me, the people of the way? His response is, why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus takes the persecution of his sons and daughters personally. He takes the persecution of the church personally. It's his church. He is its leader and he takes it personally. So those who persecute the church will have to answer to him. Jesus is Lord of all. Now, as I mentioned, uh, persecution continues these days. The guy on the left is a guy I've mentioned previously um, last year. He's a guy called Raymond, a pastor in Malaysia, serving one of the poorest communities um, in Kuala Lumpur. In a military-style kidnapping, he was taken away one day, and he's not been seen since. As time's gone by and the government's changed, more documents and more people are coming forward and it's apparent that people were involved in his kidnapping and a number of people knew about it. No one knows actually whether he's alive. His church is being persecuted. But they have Jesus to answer to. The guy on the right is another guy I just met recently. And he has a young family. I won't name him because he's planning to go and plant a church in China. And as he spoke about going to plant a church in China, he he was fully aware of the persecution that was taking place in the region that he was going to. He knew he could turn up and his life would be made very, very difficult for him and his family. The persecution continues, but I want you to know there is great hope because Jesus is in charge and he knows what is going on. 
And when you persecute his church, you're persecuting him. Well, Saul, as he continues along, is asked to go to see a man named Ananias. Now, Ananias, is, as we find out, is a guy who's just a regular follower of the way, a regular Christian. We don't actually hear much more of him after this, although he plays a significant part in this story. And the Lord calls to him in a vision and says, um, I want you to go down to uh, Straight Street to a man called um, to a man from Tarsus called Saul. He's praying, and I want you to go and meet with him um, and, and place hands on him and restore his sight. And Ananias goes, what? <laughs> hang on, hang on. Isn't this the guy who's taking people and putting them in prison? You want me to go and talk to him? Like, clearly he's afraid, and, and understandably so. He knows the reputation of Saul. He knows how he's treated people of the way. He knows that he's come to arrest them and take them away. But listen to what the Lord says to Ananias. He says, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. What a remarkable moment. Can you imagine what's going through Ananias' mind? Hang on. You're talking about the guy who's throwing people in jail? What? You're, you're turning this around? You're going to use him? And he's going to be your instrument? Now, of course, the beautiful thing that's happening here at this particular point in time as well is that Ananias is being Jesus' instrument as well, isn't he? He's being obedient and following Jesus and following him in what he's called him to do. And so there's a beautiful moment in which we see Jesus as Lord of all has called someone who's least expected to follow him and he's going to use him as an instrument. But not only that, he's, only, he's going to use a plain, ordinary Christian guy to be an instrument as well. And I think that says something to us, can I say. Sometimes at church, uh, Paul Tripp reminds us that many times we can think of ourselves as kind of peop- uh, coming to church merely just to attend or to be part of an organisation. And we lose sight of the fact that God has called us into a daily ministry. And as he puts it, make ministry your life and your life ministry. His point is simply this. If God has called you to himself, then you're his instrument. (laughs) He's going to use you. He's Lord of all. He can use all kinds of people to do all kinds of things. In fact, he wants to use you in his service. He wants your life in his service wherever he places you, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing. He wants you to serve you. He wants him, you to serve him anywhere you find yourself. Isn't that a remarkable thing? That the Jesus, the Lord of all, chooses to use us 
as his instruments? Well, Ananias, as Jesus' instrument, finds himself placing his hands on Saul. And you can almost see him doing this, and he's, he's probably shaking, <laughs> like, who's this guy in front of me? Am I going to jail? And he places his hands on Saul. But look what the words he uses. Brother Saul. And you know, that's what happens when you hear God's call and you see yourself as his instrument. It changes the way you look at others. Just hours before, Ananias is living in fear of Saul. But God has worked in Ananias' heart. And now he calls a man he fears, brother. You are my brother in Christ. Let me welcome you. And so his hands are placed on him and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And, Paul, and Saul is able to see again. He's baptised and he's given some food to regain his strength because he's been fasting over the last few days. It is just a magnificent and beautiful scene of what Jesus can do and how Jesus can change things. And it gives us that kind of expectancy that Jesus can change things, can make a difference. Just in these last few weeks, I had the opportunity to sit down and have a meal with two guys, and as we got talking, it became evident that God had changed both their lives in very, very significant ways. They lived on opposite side of the world. One lived in Asia, and the other lived, used to live in Texas. What they had in common was drugs. The guy from Asia used to sell drugs. He was a dealer until God got a hold of him and transformed him. The guy from Texas was on the border, border with Mexico and he used to run drugs until God got a hold of him and transformed him. As we were having lunch, we were talking about the fact that they were supporting people all over the world planting churches in the name of Jesus Christ. God had a plan for their lives that they did not know about at the beginning. And he turned them around and he used them as his instrument in the service of others. I wonder, as you think about your own life, your own world, the people around you, if you're someone who follows Jesus, is there someone who seems too hard? Is there someone who you wonder whether God could make a difference? I think this passage reminds us, don't give up hope. Continue to pray for that person. Continue to love that person. To continue to be an instrument in their lives. And if you're someone who is an instrument, on behalf of God, maybe God will use you to speak into someone else's life. Maybe that's his plan as well. Of course, you could be here this evening and you might think, I'm the most unlikely person to come to know Jesus. 
I really am not very interested in that at all. Well, you see what happens? God might have other plans. And it's really worth listening to what he has to say. Because he can turn our lives around. He can make a difference. Jesus is Lord of all. Well, as the story continues, we find that Saul starts getting engaged in preaching and teaching and telling people more about Jesus. He tells them, he proves that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the man who is rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Now he proves that Jesus is the Messiah. But what almost immediately happens as he starts to follow Jesus, the Jesus of the way, is that people try to kill him. He, he once was the persecutor, now he becomes the persecuted. And he has to escape. Somewhere in the midst of this, he spends three years preaching around the Jordan, and finally, he ends up in Jerusalem. He's been experiencing persecution from the outside, but in some senses, he experiences from the inside as well, because when he gets to Jerusalem, they're all afraid of him. Such is his reputation. People are still concerned that somehow he might be taking people to prison, that maybe he's lying, maybe he's a spy. But Barnabas, one of the apostles, took him to one of the apostles and explains the situation, explains what's happened in Damascus, explains that he's been preaching fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul begins a ministry in Jerusalem, speaking the name of Jesus. But you notice what happens again? They try to kill him. They try to persecute him. That's a great advertisement, advertisement for Christianity, isn't it? Come, follow Jesus, follow the way... And you will experience pain and persecution and difficulty and a life you didn't expect. In fact, you may have noticed I skipped a verse earlier on. When Ananias was told to go and get him, he was also told this, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I don't think he was being vindictive. I think he's just making a statement about what's going on. It's not a great ad, is it? Follow Jesus and you will feel pain. So why? How does this happen? Well, I think this is particularly difficult for us to understand in this day and age. And I want to suggest a reason for it. And to do that, I'm just going to sort of step back a little bit and then come back into what we're talking about. Just recently, I've been reading an article um, by a guy called uh, David Williams, who works at St Andrews Hall in Melbourne. And he's been thinking about the way we make decisions uh, in our society and the way we've gone about doing things in our society more recently. And he's noticed a shift um, in the way we go about making decisions, particularly about what is right or wrong. Um, he suggests that in, in, in a society that was around 50 years ago, most people decided what was right or wrong um, 
on the basis of whether they would get caught or not. And he describes it as having a kind of inner lawyer saying, you watch out, you're going to get caught. Uh, Perhaps some of you might have experienced this as children with your parents. Uh, The reason you didn't do something is because something inside you told you might you might be caught for doing that and there would be punishment as a result. So the reason you made your decision is because you might get caught. And so you wanted to do the right thing. You didn't want to get caught. What he also acknowledges, though, is that this is not all people's internal system. Sometimes people have an internal grandma. In a shame-honour culture... You don't have an inner lawyer, you have an inner grandma. And she says, don't shame the family, don't shame me. What are you going to do? Don't do that, because you might bring shame upon us. An inner grandma. Most interestingly, though, he says, he notes another shift that is coming. And that is a shift that is a a result of the pain and pleasure worldview. It suggests that we don't have an inner lawyer or an inner grandmother, but an inner therapist. I don't know what your therapist looks like, but maybe not like this. An inner therapist. And that inner therapist says things to you like this. Go for it, you're worth it. Avoid pain, seek pleasure. If something makes you unhappy, avoid it. Make your decisions on what feels good, what completes your desires. And so your identity becomes a pleasure seeker and a pain avoider. Now we haven't got time to really explore this in depth this evening and I've been trying to think about examples of this and interestingly this morning as I was talking about this, I was talking to a woman who is a midwife. And I said, tell me, is this kind of true? And she said, well, actually, it is kind of true. This is not always the case. But she said, I'm meeting a number of women now who are just completely shocked that we haven't removed pain from childbirth. They can't get their heads around the fact that that there's still pain involved. Surely we're modern enough to have got to this point where we can remove all pain. It's an interesting insight. And I wonder sometimes whether we, when we binge watch TV, whether that's kind of a, uh, uh, an opportunity to, to kind of reject pain and kind of dull things and seek pleasure and not really deal with the pains of life. I don't know, maybe you can come and tell me afterwards how you see this evolving in our culture. But I think it's a really interesting insight into our world and to what's going on. Of course, the trouble with this idea that we should avoid pain is it's actually quite dangerous. A number of years ago, I read a book called Pain, the Gift That Nobody Wants. Uh, It's written by a man who was uh, Dr. Paul Brand, who was the guy who did a lot of work around the issue of leprosy. And his discovery was... The reason that people were losing their fingers and their toes and things like that um, as a result of leprosy was because they could not feel the ends of their fingers and toes and other parts of their body. They'd lost all sensation of pain. 
And so they'd hit things and they would literally lose bits of their body as a result without any sensation. In fact, he discovered that very often people who had leprosy would go blind. And the reason they would go blind is because they couldn't feel that their eyes were drying up. There was no pain and so they didn't blink. His argument was actually pain is a gift. Obviously, there's some caveats around that. But it tells you that something is wrong and something needs attention to. And avoiding pain actually does not help you in the end. It can actually destroy you. And the truth is, if you're covering up pain with pleasure all the time, you'll find that actually the pleasure turns in to something that's quite painful. And so it's quite a dangerous way to make our decisions. And I think we're going to see it more and more in issues like euthanasia, for example. Why do we need to make this decision? I know it's a complex issue. Where does pain fit into this? What I think is also true, though, is it means for us as Christians, if we start to adapt and to evolve in that direction as well, when it comes to the thought of standing for our faith with the possibility that it might make us feel uncomfortable, then there's every possibility that we will step back as well. Because we fear and we're concerned about the pain. Now, it's completely understandable. You can see what's happening to Paul, and Paul is someone who, uh, Saul rather, who, someone who will go on and explain how difficult it is. He talks about a thorn in the flesh and, and how he would love to get rid of it. So he's, he's very aware of what is taking place. But the reality is, following Jesus is not a call to fix everything so you feel better and so you feel good about everything. It's a call to follow someone who's gone before you, who understands what pain is, who understands what difficulty is. Because, you know, Jesus bore our pain that he might give us the gift of life. Why is Paul able to do this? Why is Paul able to switch from someone persecuting Christians to following Jesus and finding himself persecuted? Because he fell in love with the risen Jesus. And he realised that Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can truly destroy us. And that suffering is being cast away from God. Jesus has dealt with our pain and suffering in himself on the cross. And so he calls us not to find our identity in the inner law, in the inner lawyer, or in the grandmother, or in the avoidance of pain, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, Come to me. Just bring yourself. I want to use you as my instrument. I want to captivate you with my love. I want to call your name. I want you to follow me.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.